0: Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello.
1: And I'm Nick Rurkraut.
0: And today we are talking about, I will just say it from the beginning, two of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion, The Red Shoes and All That Jazz. A little Dancing is Life themed episode today with these classics.
1: I didn't know at the outset, but this is an incredible double feature. I also agree, two of the greatest movies of all time. And while it may be a little dark or depressing at times, I think it's totally worth it. These just leave you aghast and totally mind blown when you're done with them. And they're journeys that you just continue to go on and be surprised by every time you watch.
0: It really is an incredible double feature. I don't even know How influenced All That Jazz was by the Red Shoes, I imagine this movie was in Fosse's brain when he was creating All That Jazz, but both films have these fantastical elements and these characters who you just feel for the entire time, even if they are making choices that you don't always understand. But for them, performing and performance and the dedication to their craft is why they are alive. And that is something I think that makes the viewing experience for both of these movies so beautiful, but also their stories that do have warnings, I think, and that are tinged in darkness and that have sequences that almost make them feel like horror movies at times, even though I would never call either of them just straight horror films. They definitely have images that will terrify both of these movies stick with me long after they've finished.
1: Yeah, All That Jazz... This was a great first watch.
0: I'm so happy about this, by the way. I'm so excited. Like, giving you a 70s movie is always scary, but I thought maybe this one could be a good one.
1: It was definitely a lot and not what I expected. I had went into it totally blind, and I've just come to realize that Fossy is a horror director. He really is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like you're saying, gives you images that just stick with you. Like, I just want to rewatch that final sequence over and over and over. We'll get to elements. I don't want to jump the gun too much yet, but also with the red shoes, the lighting is impeccable, the colors, all things we will discuss very shortly. But yeah, they come together to show you like how obsessive art can be and becoming the star, becoming perfect. Mm -hmm. And it's scary at times, but I think both of these movies put you into their shoes very well giving you that full experience.
0: Yeah and I think I talk about this often but one thing I always want to feel when I'm watching movies is just this sense that when I'm watching a movie I am alive and I feel this electricity running through my body and both of these films make me feel that to an incredible degree that I find really hard for other films and other filmmakers to replicate we will be spoiling both of these. I feel like in order to talk about them, we need to talk about the ending and the final shots for both of these movies and why they're important. So the timestamps will be in the description. We will give a warning before we talk about the ending for each one, but just so you know.
1: So getting right into the Red Shoes description here. In this classic drama, Vicki Page is an aspiring ballerina torn between her dedication to dance and her desire to love. While her imperious instructor, Boris Lermontov, urges her to forget anything but ballet, Vicky begins to fall for the charming young composer, Julian Craster. Eventually, Vicky, under great emotional stress, must choose to pursue either her art or her romance, a decision that carries serious consequences. This was directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, stars Maura Shearer, Anton Walbrook, and Marius Goring. It won two Oscars for Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, and Music Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. The other nominations were for Picture, Writing, Motion Picture Story, and Film Editing. Only five Oscars seems like so, so little for what it deserves.
0: It should be up there with like All About Eve and La La Land, in my opinion. Titanic with like 14 nominations. Mm
1: -hmm. I think maybe just getting into why... It only had five and one two briefly. Is that I was shocked to read that it had mixed criticism when it was released. So this is a British film, and I think the Brits were massively underwhelmed by it, which I was totally perturbed by, because this is just a filmmaking, cinematographic feat on multiple levels. But there was also criticism that like the ballet aspects of the company and the intensity of it were just wholly unrealistic.
0: It's a fairy tale.
1: Yeah and to me like it's a movie that I think really adapts this world very well and takes something from the stage that could have been like pretty bland in an adaptation in that way to new heights. It was so experimental. Again the colors, how it was blocked and directed just keeps you totally in sync with these dancers the whole time.
0: It is interesting when you talk about, like, the criticism and the critical reception to this movie, because when I watch this, it just feels so ahead of its time to me, where I think, how was this made in 1948? It feels like a movie that would have come out at least in the 60s. It just feels so massive and creative in how it's staged and in what they're bringing to the table with Technicolor, the cinematography... Every stylish decision that's made here is, I believe, technically perfect. I also have to tell you that when we discussed An American in Paris, you critiqued that movie because you were like, they just stole from the red shoes. And I was like, no, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They completely stole from the red shoes in every way and did it in a less creative way. And watching this time, I was like, oh, my God. That is so unfortunate because that's the type of movie I think that audiences could connect to because it was just a straight up, cheery, sweet musical mm-hmm. with flourishes that are similar to the ones here, but without any of the heightened style decisions that were made here. Because I I read too in the essay that's in my Criterion four K that Gene Kelly had them watch this movie fifteen times, so I was, I was wrong. <laughs> for giving him the benefit of the doubt.
1: I was literally about to mention An American in Paris again and bring back my <laughs> thoughts on that movie. <laughs> but you're totally right. Like Gene Kelly in this happier version of The Red Shoes, like of course it's going to win picture and mm-hmm. writing and cinematography and so many others, but this came about 3 years before that and to see like yes, The Red Shoes was nominated for picture. But I'm glad you came to your senses. <laughs> about I mean, you were, at the time when we discussed An American in Paris, you really liked that final sequence. And that, to me, was way more successful as this like mid-feature pause when you have the 15-minute ballet sequence. Because Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, okay, we're doing this. And everything there was just brand new for me. And again, yeah, for that to happen in a 1948 movie... Mm -hmm. is not something I would have ever expected.
0: And I wonder if audiences at the time were just confused, and this will come out again when we talk about all that jazz, but if they were confused by the hallucinations that she experiences, and these other characters that are coming onto the screen, and the shots where we are seeing things that are from her point of view, and things that definitely could not be happening on that stage if you were watching a standard ballet I wonder if audiences were just confused by this and needed something more straightforward that's unfortunate when that happens because it's like you're watching something before your eyes that is going to Mm -hmm. change the course of filmmaking forever I think that's the other thing so when did you come to the red shoes I know you watched it per my recommendation (laughs) not that long ago right for the first time.
1: It was a year and a half ago, and yeah, that experience was life-changing in a way. Like, ever since then, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it, so I'm glad we're doing this today. I hadn't really considered the Oscars of it when I watched it, and at the time, I didn't really know much about Paul and Pressburger either, but that has inspired me to want to check out more of their films.
0: Yeah, I... Would do Black Narcissus for the cinematography alone. Yeah, the Red Shoes for me also came to me later. I didn't have some experience where I watched it in college or went to some retro screening at a theater. It was early COVID, it was in 2020, and it was on the Criterion channel. And I just thought, okay, like I don't know much about this. I remember having seen it on like some top 10 lists and Knowing that Marty, of course, talks about it being inspirational to him, but I didn't know the actors who were in the movie, and I just decided to watch it, and I can't even, I feel like, accurately describe the experience of watching it for the first time. And I remember even in the beginning of the movie, just thinking like, oh, this, this is so me. This is a movie that was made for me. Like I loved the costumes. I thought to myself, oh, I would have loved this movie when I was little. This Vicki Page character and her red hair and her gorgeous costumes and it being in London. There were so many things that made it feel like a movie for me. And then we have that 15 minute dance sequence in the middle and I just remember thinking, like, where have you been all my life? How have I, you know, not seen this movie until now? And it feels already like it's one of my favorites. And I remember it's just this like buzzy feeling you cannot get rid of that sticks with you throughout the entire film. You I just I'm moved to tears when I watch this. I don't cry all the time when I watch movies, but there's something about this that just like when you see some of these images, you are just blown away thinking, like, how did someone come up with this?
1: Yeah, this was so impactful that I put the red shoes in my top four on Letterboxd. Again, it's one you just think of over and over and over. And yeah, not only what it's saying about dancing, and like Powell described this as a film about dying for art, that art is worth dying for. Like that obsessive nature you can really apply to in any line of work, but also of Vicky, like, is she able to have it all? Like, can she have love and be a star? And I think the issues that it raises with women's rights and abilities to have the same experiences and goals that men do. And at the time, I think that was extremely provocative.
0: Yeah, no, I think that what you said about can women have it all, that's the the key to the whole story. But also... These men in her life, specifically Lermontov, he is determined, I think, in controlling the women around him to kind of further sustain his goals. And I think because he's afraid and he feels personally that they shouldn't have it all, that they should have to choose between what he would consider this sad, sorry life, being in love with some man, being a housewife... And being a dancer. And earlier in the movie, the prima ballerina arena, when she announces that she's going to get married, he's the only person who isn't excited for her. He hides and she no longer has a job. He doesn't even give her really the chance to try to balance mm-hmm. both, to try to you know, have this life outside of dance and to be a dancer. In his mind, it's one or the other. And he's such a curious character, too. He has a little bit of Reynolds Woodcock to him that that I always observe, that he's very resolute in his beliefs and in his actions and incredibly stubborn, but he is always the one who is making the call, right? At the beginning, like when Vicky is so desperate to become a dancer and to be a part of his company he reluctantly meets her at this party and then like gives her an invitation to come dance and then promptly ignores her plays mind games with her mm-hmm. and basically makes her have to work for it and then after seeing her dance and after she made that decision herself and she goes after what she wants and is like you know i'm gonna perform even if it's at this small theater that's what it takes to get him to pay attention to her. So yeah, he, in my mind, when I think about like the fairy tale aspect of this movie, because it is a fairy tale within a fairy tale, he is like your standard villain of the story. He's like a personified version, I think, of this greater evil, which is dance, and that obsession is at the core as well.
1: Yeah, I think Boris's character is interesting. I had noticed something throughout the movie of like his pale skin and and very like cold Russian demeanor, but I hadn't really put it together, but I listened to this video by the Royal Ocean Film Society and they also explained how like the lighting on him throughout the movie and in different scenes like grayer, colder colors being around him and mm-hmm. like giving him that look of a vampire. And he really is like sucking the soul from these dancers, this company, in order to try to achieve perfection.
0: Well, and with him looking like a vampire, too, I love the colors that are around him. So like when he's like in his office, you have a lot of times blues and grays. And then later in the movie, you do get more reds and golds, like darker, warmer colors, instead of cool colors, like to make him look I think even more evil like when he has that almost like maroon robe on and he's brooding and then like looks at himself in the mirror Mm -hmm. like that that feels like a horror movie too
1: and i think at the very end not a spoiler yet but the lighting on his face before we get the final final shot just highlights his expression so well and you're left really understanding and seeing what he's thinking and like what happens next
0: And even at the beginning of the film, you get so many key quotes. I think the screenplay is brilliant in addition Mm -hmm. to just the visual aesthetics and the technical components in the movie. But I think the quote that everyone always thinks of is that when Boris Lermontov and Vicky Page meet, he says, why do you want to dance? And she responds, why do you want to live? And that's exactly, I think, what the entire movie is about and what's going to take you through the film is that this ache that you have if you are a dancer or an artist or any type of creator that, like, in order to live, you have to dance. You have to do the thing that makes you feel alive. And I also love the line that he says later to Craster that gets him to be involved um, in the Red Shoes in the first place. Early in the movie, he realizes that his work has been stolen from him. He says... It is much more disheartening to have to steal than to be stolen from. It's a good thing to remember.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And those are the two quotes I wrote down from this movie.
0: (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Sorry to take them both.
1: (laughs) No, it's fine. But very influential. And I mean, playing over and over in my head right now is Black Swan, which is another great double feature for this movie specifically. But it's about Mm -hmm. that perfection and like living to dance. And the parallels that it has not only in like the fantastical elements of what she's seeing in this black swan, this monster that's taking over her body, but also in the red shoes, she performs Swan Lake. And that's what Boris sees her perform like in this sped up version and Mm -hmm. what convinces him to cast her. So I think that connection there is just impeccable.
0: Definitely. When you hear the Swan Lake, the Tchaikovsky music, it always does make me think of Black Swan now. Mm -hmm. And the connections there just to, yeah, like you said, to perfection, but also like to evil and to why in so many movies, dancing just feels almost like some sinister activity. And even in all that jazz too, there's a sequence in the middle that's just like a jaw dropper. Mm -hmm. But another favorite moment of mine in the movie is... When they decide to that the new ballet is going to be the Red Shoes and that Vicky is going to star in it, that she has the principal role, Lermontov is explaining to Craster like what the Red Shoes is. And I'm going to read this from the movie. He says, The ballet of the Red Shoes is from a fairy tale by Hans Andersen. It's the story of a girl who's devoured by an ambition to attend a dance in a pair of Red Shoes. She gets the shoes, goes to the dance. At first, all goes well and she's very happy. At the end of the evening, she gets tired and wants to go home. But the red shoes are not tired. In fact, the red shoes are never tired. They dance her out into the streets. They dance her over the mountains and valleys, through fields and forests, through night and day. Time rushes by, love rushes by, life rushes by, but the red shoes dance on. Then Craster asks, what happens in the end? And Lermontov replies, in I think the scariest way, Oh, in the end, she dies. That's it. Mm -hmm. She dies.
1: He tells this incredibly beautiful and detailed description. And then the ending, the fact that she dies is just so nonchalant. Like it's just a product and just something that happens. Yeah, it feels very disconnected and so cold, but also calculated because he knows that like he is this figure also doing this in real Mm -hmm. life.
0: Yeah, let's use this then to get into spoilers a little bit. But so she, of course, dances in this incredible sequence in the middle of the movie that we've already touched on. She performs the red shoes, but when she performs the red shoes, it does feel because of the direction and because of the cinematography that all of a sudden Vicky's life her life is this ballet and this ballet is her life and there's no separating them anymore it's not even that she really has a choice it almost feels like she is fated to not to live the life of the character but to yes to live the life (laughs) of the character because that's who she is Mm -hmm. all of a sudden when she sees Lermontov and of Craster and of the shoes coming onto her feet and of these gorgeous settings around her, you realize, like, these people that are in her life, these experiences that she's having on stage and in her life off the stage, like, it's all one. I remember the first time I watched it thinking in this moment, oh, my God, I think she's going to die at the end. Mm -hmm. But it's still shocking when it happens. Because you don't know how it's going to happen, but... I mean, it's jaw-dropping.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one thing that you're really waiting for the whole movie is, is she going to die? Is she going to live? Because The Red Shoes itself, the story by Hans Christian Andersen is so well-known, so you kind of expect her to die. And I think the ambiguity there is something that the directors really wanted audiences to play with and to talk about. But before we go into the ending, going back to that ballet sequence, I love when... They play with cinematography and these experimental elements like her seeing herself in that window with the shoes on dancing. And she's like, I need these shoes. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. I'm going to be the star. And then the like really quickly edited shot where they just slide onto her feet. Which also reminded me from Nope of that shoe.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I'm so glad that you said this (laughs) because I wrote that down in my notes. Nope shoe.
1: (laughs) I rewound it a few times. I was like, oh my God. Like maybe that's this like extraterrestrial fantasy element that Peel was playing with. Like it's not only fate for her to live this life, but it's something that's like going to fully consume her.
0: I just feel like as audiences too, we are so lucky to get to experience this sort of point of view of a character. You get to experience what the sense of euphoria connected to dance is for her. We're not seeing what the audience sees. We are seeing what Vicky sees when she dances. And that feeling that we talk about having when we watch this movie of like, you can't escape it it's all consuming it's electric like all of these feelings that you have when you're watching it it makes it understandable that she wants to dance until she dies because that feeling that high that she gets you you know what it feels like because of the choices that they make right you you can see her going through these ballrooms and these outdoor settings that look like deserts and You see a lake and the clouds. And my favorite one is when she's walking. You get that tracking shot and all those like pieces of like cellophane. Mm -hmm. Like it looks like streamers are kind of falling all around Mm -hmm. her. It's just so beautiful. And when you know that that's her experience, you know she's stuck on this ride now and can't get off. Because how would you ever?
1: She floats through these different sets as if she were a cloud. Like her dancing is impeccable. And I Mm -hmm. think why the movie succeeds as well. Powell and Pressburger were pretty adamant to find a dancer that could act instead of something vice versa. And it was kind of funny to read that Moira denied this role for over a year because she stated that the ballet company portrayed was utterly unlike any that there had ever been before. But she plays this so well, her red hair exemplified by the technicolor process that the film uses, I mean, they use red throughout the movie in just wonderful ways, but I think she really is the star of this movie and really makes us feel what the shoes make her feel.
0: I agree. I think she's perfect for this role. She is this bright light in the movie. She's this representation, I think, of passion and beauty and warmth. Like, not just the color of her hair, but just how she goes about being this ballerina before the red shoes before she gets that principal part she just seems very eager and she's very kind she doesn't like we don't see her trying to like walk all over people or demand that she gets this role she earns it and she I think is such a great foil to the Lermontov character because he is so cold and dedicated to work and evil he's the one who ultimately Tempts her, and he knows that she's vulnerable and she loves dancing. And you know, he will, he tells her that he'll make her the greatest dancer the world has ever known. And it's almost like she's being tempted by the devil a little bit there.
1: Yeah, the way she's pulled by the shoes and Boris, I think she does a great job dancing of making us feel the pull that the shoes have on her. And that kind of melds into theater becoming reality. Like, in the very end, when she has those shoes on, we feel the pull as well, leading into the ambiguity of, like, did the shoes push her over or did she mm-hmm. just become so consumed by everything and everyone trying to pull her in different ways that, like, she couldn't do it anymore. But there are different parallels from the theater and then in reality that I think make you question this theme in real, like, our own reality, not just the characters mm-hmm version of reality.
0: Right. Getting into the ending a bit more, she has to choose between her life in London with Julie and Craster because the two of them like ultimately fall in love, or she can continue her career. But then you get to what you said and you think, like, does she really have a choice at all? Because the way that they edit and shoot these shoes when they are on her feet at the end, how they move. I have mm-hmm. no idea how they did this at all. It's just like one of those movie-making magic things. But you, in that moment, based on the movement of the shoes, you believe that the shoes are pulling her. Like, they are dictating her movements. She's mm-hmm. not in control of her movements. And I remember when I first watched it, I was overwhelmed by this sadness, thinking that she, you know, decided to throw herself off of that balcony. And then the feeling that stays with you is just like, she didn't have control the shoes couldn't stop dancing they were taking her over that balcony Mm -hmm. but then you can look at that on a deeper level too and think yes the shoes are magical but for her if the shoes are representative of dance that was her great love and that was what dictated her choices as well Mm -hmm. so oh it's yeah it's it's very sad and for a movie i think that ends on a note like this and that's incredibly dark it's almost even more chilling just how beautiful and bright it all is because that's why you remember this movie and I think why it sticks with you.
1: That brings to mind two different shots from the movie that I love. They're on the darker side, but one of I believe it's Boleslowski who is the shoemaker, and he like reaches his hands up, and the shadows of his hands reaching up, grabbing her, are like the shoes pulling her into this hellish state. And then also once. During the red shoes, she realizes that, like, she can't take them off and she wants to stop dancing. She's given this knife and she's trying to claw at the shoes and it immediately turns into this twig. And then she Mm -hmm. throws it and the knife lands, like, into the floor as a knife again. I love that so much.
0: Okay, if we're talking about favorite shots, the first one in the movie that makes me cry is when she goes to meet Lermontov there in Monte Carlo. She's wearing my favorite costume of hers in the movie, which is this like stunning blue gown with this like blue cape robe over top and this tiara. And we get this shot of her from behind as she's about to walk up all of these stairs and everything is sort of overgrown before she gets to the top and it's so beautiful and so pure, but you know from then on like there's no going back for her. Mm-hmm. Really? It's just this entry into a whole new world, and she's going to, unfortunately, have to embrace her fate that comes after going up those stairs, and my other favorite shot from the, like, 15-minute sequence is when we see her dancing in the spotlight, she looks like a ballerina, almost in, like, a music box, and earlier, Lermontov had made this bet that the audience would applaud during the show. And at the moment where we can assume the audience is applauding, you see these waves crashing in front of her. Mm-hmm. And it's just so beautiful because you think, like, to her, that's what that sounds like. It's just a really, really beautiful shot and brings back the nature that you see earlier in the movie. It's very, very impressionistic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, with all of the dissolves that happen during that sequence, I think that's why I love it so much. They're playing with her being in these different environments. But they're also changing for her because she's in paradise. She's living her fantasy and the movements of the play. Like at first, she's so scared to dance because she's like, I can't remember my first mark. And Boris is like, you will. The music will play. Mm -hmm. And she does. And to her at that moment, it becomes second nature. And that's also the experimental part of it that I love is you don't know where the ballet starts and ends. It's it's her just gliding until she dies.
0: There's obviously like more we could talk about with this movie. We've covered quite a bit, but just to have scratched the surface, there's so much. But it really is, I think, just such a masterpiece. And after I watched it, it made me want to go back through my letterbox, all the movies that I've watched, that I've given five stars and dock them all. Like half a point, because... <laughs> this is just another level. Yep. So we talked about Oscar nominations, how it won two was nominated for three others, who or what, if anything, was snubbed. I'm just going to say from the beginning, we have to talk about cinematography.
1: Yeah, the fact that Jack Cardiff wasn't nominated is obscene. I think other categories first, I would have nominated Moria Shearer for actress and Anton Walbrook as Boris in supporting actor. Supporting lead,
0: I think he would probably be lead if you were doing it strictly based on like screen time and impact in the film.
1: Yeah, because I think Marius Goring as Julian would have been supporting. So probably Boris would have been lead. Are there other categories that you would have nominated?
0: So first, Moira Shearer, her not wanting to do this movie at first, taking forever to sign on. Um, Powell said in his autobiography that he believed that she just didn't know how talented she was. She didn't know what type of screen presence she was and i agree i think she's the perfect choice for this movie and she just has this magnetic presence to her like she isn't just a dancer i'm not going to throw anyone specifically under the bus from other movies but sometimes in musicals we do get dancers who are not movie stars and they do not hold my attention in the same way and make me feel for them in the same way that moira Shearer did and yeah, I think she should have gotten a nomination for sure. Especially because that year there were just a few that I don't really understand that were nominated. Ingrid Bergman for Joan of Arc. I mean, Irene Dunn and Barbara Stanwyck were nominated again. Jane Wyman for Johnny Belinda is not a favorite winner of mine. So there definitely was room for her. There was also room for Anton Walbrook in Best Actor. Laurence Olivier, of course, won for Hamlet, but uh, I don't know. Dan Daly for When My Baby Smiles at Me, I'm okay. I think the interesting thing about him too, I mean, he just, he isn't in too many movies I think that would be familiar to listeners, but he is in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which is another... Um, really Mm -hmm. good movie by the archers pal and pressburger and i just feel like he plays this character so well i think it's a really difficult part to have the coldness the dedication but also to have characteristic where you can understand as a viewer why people would be drawn to him Mm -hmm. why people would want to work for him so i feel like he definitely deserved a nomination as well the two big ones for me pal and pressburger for director they should have been nominated there i suppose the mixed reception is why they were not and yeah. it being ahead of its time but john houston for the treasure of the sierra madre is a good winner but there's definitely room for them in this category as well but always jack cardiff for cinematography missing here will never make sense to me i think this is one of the most beautifully shot progressive cinematography achievements in cinematography ever and i'm gonna read you the other nominees for best cinematography color And you can tell me if you think they're on other top 10 lists. Joan of Arc, Green Grass of Wyoming, The Loves of Carmen, and The Three Musketeers.
1: Not even five noms. Like, give it the fifth nomination. Mm Mm-hmm. And briefly with cinematography, I think using the technicolor process totally makes this film, like the way the color is so heightened and that saturation you get really heightens everything on screen. And I think the ballet, especially in the middle, is just elevated to another level because of it. I mean, I love everything throughout the movie, but those moments on screen and when they use the reds and these really strong colors just pops so well on screen.
0: Mm -hmm. And we can also thank Martin Scorsese and editor Thelma Schoonmaker for the restoration. Thelma was married to Michael Powell for many years, and they really led the charge in getting this restoration off the ground but yeah if you look at the before and after comparisons it really is stunning but it did look great before the restoration as well
1: Mm -hmm. I mean watching this the first time I remember being shocked but then like watching this again now I think with that 4k and it being on the criterion channel I was like even more shocked it was Mm -hmm. so crisp So bright, so colorful. Like, even movies today, we don't get this look. And it just continues to baffle me.
0: So, how do you think Today's Academy would receive this movie?
1: I think, being a borderline scary movie, it still wouldn't do wholly that well. It's kind of sad. I think it would get an acting nom. I think it would have a lot of those technical nominations, even probably more, but it still would do about the same.
0: I sadly agree.
1: Yeah, it's a little disappointing, but so it goes. And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
0: I'm going to like make the exception and say that I would absolutely give it Best Picture. I think it's the best movie of the year. One of my favorite movies of all time. But if I had to pick one other than Picture, I would have to give it Cinematography. I do love the Art Direction set decoration win. I feel like that is a very, very well-deserved Oscar, but I do think the cinematography is what I think of when I think of this movie. So that's what I would give it.
1: Yeah, that's second for me. Also the editing, but I'm going to give it art direction to Heinheckroth and Arthur Lawson. I think their work with melding reality and stage goes so, so well together. And then adding in all the colors and these designs that just totally blow you away and that are ripped off or used, however you look at it, in so many other movies, especially ones about dancing and musicals and art. So I think their work here is incredibly influential and deserving.
0: Heine Roth, the first time that a painter supervised the look of a movie. Amazing. OK, let's get into All That Jazz from 1979. Description here. Joe Gideon is at the top of the heap, one of the most successful directors and choreographers in musical theater but he can feel his world slowly collapsing around him. His obsession with work has almost destroyed his personal life and only his bottles of pills keep him going. This was directed by Bob Fosse and stars Roy Scheider, Anne Ranking, and Jessica Lange. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival that year. It won four Oscars for film editing, art direction, set decoration, costume design, best music, original song score, and its adaptation or best adaptation score. It's a mouthful. And it was nominated for five other Oscars picture, director, actor for Scheider, screenplay, and cinematography. The other picture nominees that year, so this is the Kramer versus Kramer year, where that one, picture, director, and screenplay. And we also had Apocalypse Now, Breaking Away, and Norma Ray. This was your first time watching this movie. What did you think? I need to know everything, as this is one of my favorites ever.
1: I think, first off, I was really taken by Fosse's direction, it's incredibly dark, and I think this character, much like if we were to put Boris and Vicky together into somebody who is just so obsessive-compulsive about their career, their work, their success, was just almost too much to handle. Like, seeing him overexert himself and basically wait for him to disintegrate was so painful, there are certain sequences that I was nauseous through. I absolutely loved the choreography and all of those dancing scenes. I think that's where this movie, and I think he in particular and Fosse succeeds as a director. Like, no matter what is happening, if there's dancing going on, it's impeccable filmmaking. And the way he, again, like the Red Shoes, turns that into this all consuming filmmaking. It's fantastic, it's a tale somewhat as old as time, but the way the movie finishes with that final sequence, and again plays with this fantasy element, these dreamlike sequences, it's so well made. I think it's one I need to revisit and will probably get better on rewatch because there is a lot happening and there's a lot to break down and to take from what he's saying. But I think the way he does everything is fantastic.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, it does get better on rewatch. I actually think this movie works at its best when you are either 48 to 72 hours post first watch to, like, immediately after your second watch. It's hard to explain, but this movie, when I first saw it, it does take you a minute because I think you're so overwhelmed by the editing. The editing is so brilliant. And I do not know, every time I watch this, how they pull it off. How they get these dance sequences right. How it feels like a documentary at times. How you have these quick cuts. How you have this angel of death, Angelique, played by Jessica Lang, who was one of Bob Fosse's many women throughout his life. That's another whole thing that we can break down that's in this movie. But I think it's just a lot to figure out at first because you were just It's overwhelming and it naturally just makes you feel a lot and it makes you feel very connected to your own life and to your own death and mortality. And that I feel like is better when you are a couple of days away from it. It sinks in a little bit more and it is just better on rewatch. It just gets better each time. I think my favorite thing about this movie too is just that it's semi-autobiographical. Fosse Mm -hmm. is Joe Gideon and this movie is not kind to Joe Gideon. He is always smoking, he's always drinking, he is a womanizer, he is working on way too much all at once. He's very hard on his body, he's very hard on all of the people around him. He is choreographing and directing a musical while also editing a movie. And both of these things actually don't seem like they're going to work out very well. The movie seems bad. The stage show seems like it's sort of in shambles. That takes a lot of self-awareness and a lot of courage to be able to see your own life and your own death in that way and put it on screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's hubris involved for sure as well. It is Fosse. But I love that he was able to do that. And of course, Anne Ranking in this movie is playing herself. The character is Katie, but that's Anne Ranking playing herself. She's with Roy Scheider, but that's her relationship with Fosse Mm -hmm. in real life. All of these choices that come together to make this film what it is. You can make a case that it is one of the greatest movies of all time, absolutely. But for me, it is my favorite American film that I think even gets close to what Fellini was trying to do with the autobiographical stuff. And so many directors have tried it and so many directors will continue to try it. And for me, this is the one. Mm
1: -hmm. I think it's that semi-autobiographical nature that really solidifies this movie as such an achievement like reading about his experience directing in the movie is basically him filming Lenny it's hard to process a little bit but seeing him in the editing room with like the stand-up comedian which was a thing in the 80s but like not something that makes great cinema it's like Mm -hmm. you're watching a stand-up special on Netflix but yeah and then going into erotica and how he is portraying the song that is laughable by Audrey and he's like what the hell am I going to do with this song turning it into this like sexual dance that is just very fun to watch but like the producer or the guy who was in on watching it was like well there goes the family audience Mm -hmm. and like what he is trying to do for Broadway and experiment again it balances I think fun with intense really well and you talked about the editing superb that opening sequence when Joe is trying to find dancers is like one of the best shot sequences ever it like totally pushes you into the world of Broadway and how the audition process works like everyone is sweating everyone is overworked and by the end he is choosing his favorites, but also, like, choosing women because he wants them. Mm -hmm. It it makes you think. It just, yeah, plays over and over in my head.
0: Well, I also have to tell you, too, that Kubrick, he thought that this was the best movie that he'd ever seen when it came out, (laughs) which is very high praise. Yeah. Yeah. So the opening, before we even get on Broadway which is just the perfect way to open the movie. This movie is so so sweaty like you mentioned and just seeing all those dancers and when I'm watching that too, I always think to myself like did this movie take 5 years to shoot? Like how how did they do this? Mm-hmm. How did they capture all of this and the actors and the dancers in this way and it really drives home I think what auditioning and what Broadway is really like and how grueling it is. But even before that, the opening to this movie is just so, so perfect when you get that music playing and you get Joe showering and getting ready for the day with his Dexedrine and his Mm Alka-Seltzer and just saying, it's showtime, folks. And they repeat this throughout the movie to just show like how intense his schedule is, what his life has really become. It's just this cycle that at some point has to come to an end. I think the choreography, it's so evocative. That scene that you were talking about, Take Off With Us, it is one of the most evocative pieces of direction I've really seen in film. And it's very funny, too. But his ex-wife, who is, of course, based on Gwen Verdon, she thinks it's brilliant. She's like, damn you. Like, you did it again. How do you do this? But my favorite dance scene in the movie isn't in the end even, which we'll talk about that or take off with us or on Broadway. It is the scene when Katie and his daughter perform Everything Old is New Again, that dance that they came up with for him in his apartment, Mm -hmm. which I absolutely love that apartment. I'm like, where is this apartment in New York? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's beautiful. But in that moment, when they're performing, the choreography is just so fun and i love anne ranking here not only because i think she dances like she's the inventor of dance like when she moves her body i'm just like oh this is this is what dancing is supposed to look like like when she'll just like arch her back a certain Mm -hmm. way or like do a certain like toe point or kick i've never seen anyone in my life dance like this she puts like very cute little bits of dialogue in when she's sort of like coaching his daughter to go along the dance with her and it's just mm-hmm. adorable and it also is like the one moment in the film where we see joe as this real human he almost gets sort of emotional there's this like wistfulness to it where you can sort of see a life he could have had if he wasn't addicted to overworking himself into the career that he's chosen you almost see in his eyes that you know this is one of the most beautiful moments in my life and it's not all like glittery and glamorous and it doesn't have like beautiful naked dancers on stage it's just sweet and it makes me cry Mm -hmm. every single time I watch it
1: yeah from the beginning when the ex-wife is there with the daughter and he goes oh I have to work this weekend and the daughter's like oh it's fine and then to the mom she goes but he promised me and it cuts to him leaving and then later on we get that dance which I think is my favorite him and the daughter because they're having this like normal conversation but he's also teaching Mm -hmm. her in that moment and yeah he is being a real father which we don't see the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. and I think the daughter is like incredibly mature and probably because of their divorce and what she's been through seeing him overwork himself and perform but yeah I love how they move together because they do feel like one unit and again that's not something you see between them The rest of the movie even when Katie and the daughter are dancing they're very Mm -hmm. happy they end and they just like fall on the floor laughing because it was so fun and she's like oh can we do that again (sighs) seeing that love and that happiness like so close that he can almost taste it but to him that's like not what he's striving for is Mm -hmm. heartbreaking
0: I think now we can get into what happens to Joe and the ending of the movie So spoiler warning here, Joe has a heart attack. And once this happens, I think the editing gets even more intense for me. Because we keep getting glimpses of his life and his past via Angelique, the Jessica Lange character, who is this angel of death. And he's sort of revisiting his past. And I think on first watch, it can be very overwhelming because you are in a very vulnerable state when your main character is like this, I think. But the movie itself, in a similar way to The Red Shoes, is just all encompassing. You have to just sort of let it wash over you and feel all of it. But I think in this, as we're getting into this this finale, and I think it's my favorite use of production design and cinematography in the movie as well. The lights and how glittery and glamorous it is and that being what he's experiencing on the inside and how different it is from the like visceral shots of what is really going on at the hospital like when he mm-hmm. has that heart surgery i have to look away every single time it is just so graphic and brutal but then that's that's not what's going mm-hmm. on in his beautiful glittery mind
1: the inner cutting in that sequence is superb like you have on one side the producers talking about the budget and basically if this musical is a flop like what they can recoup financially and they'd say like if he dies we're not liable and the timing of his death becomes the variable which distills the whole process of not only broadway like making this musical but his life like to mm-hmm. nothing And then on the other side, you have the doctors performing open heart surgery and like showing the clamp, like opening the chest. I had just sat down with my breakfast and I was like, "Okay, well, we're not going to be eating now. (laughs) (laughs) But that scene is so visceral. So the first time he goes to the hospital, it's just from exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And then after he's given the medication, he has the heart attack, like when he feels Mm -hmm. it and the ex-wife is like do something about it okay
0: yeah and it's interesting because he does have during the surgery is when we get this like hospital hallucination which that's what he's directing at that moment what's really emotional for me is he's trying to understand his life and why he should be living it made me think of like it's a wonderful life in a way this is much darker than that is um Mm -hmm. but when he's directing his daughter and Katie and his ex-wife in these numbers he's starting to I think realize what his life means and like why he should be living and then the last number of the movie is really just like it's it it gets me every time and it's called bye bye life which once you realize what's happening in this moment it's just like oh he is dying this is joe Mm -hmm. realizing that this is the end and there Mm -hmm. are all of these people from his life that are important to him there and he's giving this final performance for them and in the editing what is so brilliant about this he's realizing everything through the five stages of grief and you can see them play out within the song Mm. yeah um denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. He's going through all of this as he's performing this final number and we're seeing everyone in the crowd who's been important. It's also sad, I think, because his life has always been this spectacle. People are always trying to get his attention and he's always the one who has like the final say or he's the one who's making these decisions and in the end, he has choreographed this performance that he really, Fosse really outdoes himself here, imagining what his own death, which comes only a few years later, would be like. Like it's filled with glitter and sequins and costumes and these beautiful lights. And what's so creepy too is how cheery he is when he's like, I think I'm gonna die singing that. And he doesn't wanna die, but he has to smile because he's a performer.
1: Like, after this premiere, did everyone just, like, look at Fosse and go, like, are you okay? Like, nobody can watch the end of this movie, especially the final shot, and think, he's okay. No. Before we get there, yeah, the whole sequence, it's, like, seeing everybody in the crowd and going through him saying goodbye to everybody. Mm -hmm. My favorite moment with Audrey, when he goes up to her. He's holding the daughter and he's like, well, I can stop lying to you now. And she like sticks her Mm -hmm. tongue out at him playfully. Like that moment really Mm -hmm. hits me. But after all of the pomp and circumstance, like he is floating in this tracking shot towards that angel Mm -hmm. of death, towards Angelique. And he kind of gets this smile on his face as it zooms into his eyes. And I think there he's finally accepted the moment. Whereas the entire movie, like he's in the hospital and joking and smoking and not taking it seriously, as the doctors are seconding. But I think here, finally, he's again in that fifth stage. He's accepted what's mm-hmm. happening, and he's in this like little tunnel. Uh, God, it's it's yeah. emotional. I think this is where, like, talking about it is something like you need to rewatch to like feel the weight mm-hmm. of everything. Because you understand it, it's just a lot happening in the moment, and it's so incredibly deep to have captured in uh-huh. a movie.
0: It's funny. I So a couple of weeks ago, I introduced this movie to my sister for the first time. She'd never seen it.
1: This is not a movie I would show Isabel. <laughs>
0: no. At the very end, though, she just looked over at me, and she was crying, and she was like, that really got me about the end. Oh. It's so, so powerful and moving Mm -hmm. in that when yeah that tracking shot when he's just going through the tunnel it's like he's on the treadmill and you have all of those lights and you see Jessica Lang right like what a way to go welcoming you to the end his face just has every emotion that this character has felt and could feel about dying he is I think by the end yeah accepting it he has that smile that's there and he seems very intrigued by it, and that sense of amusement, I think, is also there for him that he has, like, even when he's in the hospital. And that cut to them zipping him up in the body bag with the sound of the zipper. Oh.
1: hmm
0: Oh, my God. It's It gives me chills thinking about because... It's just even if your life is the most beautiful, magnificent thing, and you are famous, and you create beautiful art, and you keep doing that, and your life is full of just extravagance and all of these things, and even if you imagine your the end of your days to be full of bright light, he's just another body in a body bag at the end of the day. It's so final.
1: Yeah. It goes, bye-bye, your life goodbye, mm-hmm. that song that's crescendoing hard cut like the hardest of cuts ever Mm -hmm. in cinema to the body bag and then it's altho merman singing there's no business like Mm -hmm. show business (laughs) just (laughs) it -hmm. gets you and it's so smart like the perfect way to end this movie and the only way it could have ended
0: let's say it just you know he's we see his face like going down the tunnel and then it cuts to the credits you're like that was nice he, he definitely mm-hmm. died, and great. We get this bit of catharsis. But going to the body bag, it's what makes it a masterpiece, I think, on top of everything else.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why Fosse is so different as a director, because he takes it that extra step. Like Also with Cabaret, these movies are jarring and gritty in a way that other musicals could mm-hmm. never be.
0: Yeah, when I think of Cabaret and when I think of all that jazz and Cabaret will cover later this year for its 50th. I think of how today so many musicals just don't feel like they're made for adults. Like they feel very Disney or they feel just very cheery. He used this medium and he used music and dance and singing. He Like he used these things to show life in a different way and to show it in that way I think that only music itself can really do, mm-hmm. yeah. It's incredible.
1: So talking about the Oscars now, I guess we can start. Who or what do you think was snubbed?
0: Snubbed for nominations is hard because I do think this is pretty good. Nine nominations, four wins. So I don't really think I have any snubs for nominations. Maybe sound? If there was a choreography category.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think the women are really strong in this movie and they're the largest part of his life. But there's not one that shines over the other, which I think would make this hard for nominating one of them and supporting. Mm-hmm. So I think the sole nomination for him an actor is a good one.
0: I agree. And then as far as wins go, I would have given this many more wins. We both liked Kramer versus Kramer. And I know people love Apocalypse Now. But I will just say for me, before we get to our one Oscar question, I would have given this wins in yes like all of its wins already film editing art direction costume design and music I also would have given it picture director actor screenplay is tough maybe I could let that one slide
1: I mean with screenplay though that includes all of the songs do you like breaking away that much
0: I do like it though I can admit that here just fine I did like breaking away a lot but oh Manhattan was that year too we don't need to get into that here today but yeah, I mean, I would actually be tempted to give it a clean sweep. I feel like it would deserve all of them. The Apocalypse Now cinematography win is really good. So maybe I would keep that one. But I would not be opposed to a clean sweep for all that jazz. Roy Scheider is so good in this movie. And I know that Dustin Hoffman is a great actor. And he's good in Kramer versus Kramer. But I do think Roy Scheider deserved to win. I think he's incredible as Joe. And he's the type of actor we just don't see anymore like I can't even envision who would play this part today and not make it look like a mess
1: Dustin would win later for Rain Man so I think we could have given Roy the Oscar here I think that would have been great director absolutely deserved by Bob Mm Fosse it is hard with Coppola and Apocalypse Now being everywhere and even that losing in many categories is shocking especially to Kramer versus Kramer I think but definitely director that's its searing loss of nomination for me.
0: And then how do you think Today's Academy would receive this movie?
1: Wow, this is tough. I feel like it could go either way, but I think I would say it would do slightly worse. This is tough. Wow. It really is a directing and a technical achievement, but I think audiences would find it maybe too hard to watch.
0: Yeah, yeah. The worst part of this for me is I can just already see the dumb articles that would come out about this. Like, all that jazz Mm -hmm. is propaganda for toxic masculinity. Like, I can just see all of these think pieces coming out, and I would get so annoyed. But I feel like it's just something today that, like, modern audiences wouldn't understand, unfortunately. It's such a harsh look at life.
1: I mean, that's what I want more of on screen, but... (laughs) No, me too. (laughs) Not for the masses. No. And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
0: Oh my god, this is so hard. (laughs) I already said I would give it a clean sweep, basically, but I think it's a toss-up for me between two. The editing is just so good, but I think I have to go with Bob Fosse for director. This is his vision of his life, and for all of the reasons that we said, he made this movie about the end of his days, really, which is just so crazy to think about and to try to put into words and he did it in such a way that is so beautiful and so lasting and he has so many things I think that we can attribute to him like Tony's and Emmy's and cabaret and everything that he did for choreography and for the musical theater industry he has all of that but when I think of Bob Fosse now and his life I will always think of all that jazz and that's incredible I don't know so I would give him director what about you?
1: Mine is the exact same argument. It's a close second for editing. It's like almost a near win for editing Mm -hmm. and director. Alan Heim, the editor, was also nominated for Network. He has some great work in his repertoire. But I think Fosse here, it's just that added element of it being about himself. And like I couldn't imagine working on a movie and putting yourself into that.
0: Into a body bag. (laughs)
1: Like There had to have been so much catharsis for him. Like, just giving himself, exposing himself. Oh, wow.
0: The self awareness. Yeah. Not many men have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just covered two of the biggest, greatest movies of all time, and it didn't take five hours. So I'm very impressed with us. <laughs> I'm glad we got to cover both of these today. It is a, I think this really is a perfect double feature. I feel sort of like, I'm having a crisis right now after watching both of these again, but I would highly recommend it. Not the crisis, just the the experience of watching these two movies.
1: We need to purge, we need to like cleanse now with like happier things.
0: <laughs> I need to watch Mamma Mia, here we go again.
1: <laughs> I loved covering these. These are two great movies that I highly recommend if you haven't seen them. Rewatching them will definitely happen in the future and two movies about Art and making art, doing what you love. Yes, like to a dangerous extent, but I think ones that really shine and are really well made. So, next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be, we've kind of hinted at this a bit. We'll be talking about George Miller. His new movie, by the time this is released, will be out in most theaters. 3,000 Years of Longing. This was a big movie from Cannes, one that we thought might creep into the Best Picture race already. So I'm excited that we'll be talking about this. And then we'll be talking about some of George Miller's other nominations in a diverse group of categories. (laughs) We have Lorenzo's Oil. This was nominated for Screenplay. And then we'll be talking about Babe. So he directed Babe, Pig in the City as like a sequel, but this is the original Babe, which he was a producer on. He was nominated here for Screenplay and Picture. And then we'll be talking about Happy Feet, which one animated feature. We're saving Mad Max Fury Road. That is a bigger episode that deserves its own spotlight. But I think this is a interesting group of other pictures to talk about for him.
0: Yeah, very, very interesting. I absolutely love Babe. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. So I'm very excited to revisit it. And I've never seen Lorenzo's Oil before. I don't know anything about it really at all other than that it is a George Miller film with Susan Sarandon Mm -hmm. so I'm eager to watch that one as well and yeah I think for Mad Max Fury Road we need to just dedicate the right amount of time to it and we can also talk about Kyle Buchanan's book for that episode later but Nick you also have exciting news I feel like I'm an embarrassing mom but I want you to share (laughs) with the listeners (laughs) where you're going and what you're seeing.
1: It is official. I'm going with Bennett Prosser to the Venice Film Festival. We've been planning this for so long and we finally got our tickets, which I think made it more real. The whole process mm-hmm. of like securing our seats was a nightmare, but we have lots and lots of movies in our future. We'll be seeing The Sun, The Eternal Daughter, Joanna Hogg's next feature with Tilda Swinton blonde, the Andrew Dominic Anna de Armas, Marilyn Monroe feature that everybody is going to be talking about for better or worse. And then some other films, The Banshees of Inishirin, Don't Worry Darling, some Italian films, some other European films. So I'm excited for this experience. This is my first international film festival and I'm like slightly scared, but also it's just going to be such a rush being there for a week, seeing triple, Mm -hmm. quadruple features, I just I cannot wait I cannot wait oh
0: yeah oh, I'm so excited for you it's gonna be so fun and I can't wait to have like have you and Bennett on to talk about mm-hmm. what it's like and it's going to be such a glamorous amazing way to kick off the fall mm-hmm. like international film festivals are just like no other the entire experience of watching it with a European crowd
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's unparalleled it's just completely different from anything you can really imagine and yeah, I told you already, but pack a lot of snacks because you'll have no time to eat because <laughs> movies are the priority always.
1: <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening. If you like our show, please rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on socials at Oscar Wild Pod.
0: You can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.